Oh, Sam's gone. That's a pity. Because he was saying he was looking forward to this, uh, the penultimate one from James. And I'm here to give you the title for today's sermon. Weep and howl. <laughs> right, Sam, I was just saying you missed, you know, you said you're looking forward to this sermon. Yep. And the title is Weep and Howl, because that is what James is telling us to do today. Right, so we're going to start from James chapter 4, verse 11, and go through to chapter 5, verse 6. Right, from verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbour? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we're going to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him that is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the labourers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, if you want to be cheered up a little before I get into my sermon, next week, when we get to verse 7, it gets a bit more cheerful. Because he says, be patient until the de- coming of the Lord. Okay? But before we get to the good bit, we have to weep and howl. Now, James speaks mainly about how we talk to one another and what we do with our money. Now, as we, I said right at the beginning, when we started looking at James, what we've got here is a condensation of the teaching of the early church. And if in the early church, the main things they had to teach people about was how you talk to one another and how you use your money, I don't think we've actually changed that much. So it is something we need to pay attention to. And if you were here two weeks ago when I was speaking on the early bit, I was speaking partly on that then anyway. But why is it so important about those two issues? Because they show what's in our hearts. How we speak, what we do with our money, shows what's really there. We can come on a Sunday and put on a show, if we wanted to. Mm -hmm. 
But what happens moment by moment, day by day, through the week, shows what we're really like. Also, how we speak and how we use our money are some of the main ways in which we interact with other people. So if we don't get this right, it's going to have an impact on our evangelism. Because if what we say about Jesus doesn't match up with what we say about other things and other people and what we do with our money, there's going to be, that mismatch is going to show up and that is going to hinder our evangelism. So let's pick up on a few points. I'm going to miss the 11 to 12 bit out because I want to stick to them mainly on the money bit today. But have a read of that and think about it. Now, verse 14. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We can make decisions about what we do out of an arrogance that we're actually in control of our lives. We can plot out a career plan and expect it to happen. But as much as in the days of James, in the first century, now, we just don't know what's going to happen. Now, a lot of people have been shocked in their expectations of society and even our nation in the way people reacted to what happened in Israel and Gaza and how people have responded to that. Nobody particularly saw that happening. If we think back to this time here, possibly 20 years after this was written, the Mount Vesuvius erupted and destroyed whole cities, Pompeii, Herculaneum, the place where the rich were. You know, if you were from Rome, going, having somewhere in Pompeii or Herculaneum was your luxury resort area. And it got covered. And there were Christians there who were going about their business who got killed. And one reason we know there are Christians there because there was anti-Christian graffiti preserved in the walls of some of the buildings. Now there's a graffiti of a, what looks like, would look like a man on a cross, apart from the fact the head is that of a donkey. And then it's, I forget what the name is underneath, but it says something like, so-and-so worships his God. Mocking the Christians in there. We just don't know what's going to happen. And yet we can arrogantly assume, I'm going to do this. You know, I, you know in my case, I could assume that starting my teaching career, that after so many years I'd have a pension this big. So far that's happened. There's no guarantee that in six months' time there's going to be a government with money to pay my pension. 
I hope there will be. I think it's likely there will be, but I don't know. So, are we truly trusting in God? Or do we think we only, do, we only draw God in on bits like when somebody we care for's child might have cystic fibrosis? Therefore, it's something to call God in. But on the rest of my life, I'll just make my own plans. Because this is what James is talking to the people, you know, in this case, Jewish Christians who are no longer in Jerusalem. They had to trade because they hadn't really got any other options to make their living. But do you assume that you can decide how things go? Or are we going to trust God? And when it says in verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Just adding on at the end of something, if the Lord wills, is not the solution to the problem. <laughs> you know, you're just using that as a sort of kind of uh, talisman, almost like a spell, just to make it okay. What matters here is what is in our hearts. Are we happy with what God wills? If God were to change things so what we were expecting doesn't happen, are we still happy with God? You know, it ties back a bit to what we're saying. God, God is faithful. But if it doesn't look like it's working out for us at the moment, does that mean we still trust God? Or does it mean we think, oh, well, he hasn't done what I expected, toss him on the rubbish heap? We're never quite that blunt when we talk to other people, but deep down that can be how we think. So what's our motivation there? And this comes on over, I think, also when we look into chapter 5, where he tells the rich to weep and howl. But you say to me, I'm not rich, so it doesn't apply to you. Right, let's have a quick uh, show of hands. How many of you think you're rich? What type of rich? Finance or life? Finance. How much think they've got lots of money? Okay, a few. Most people don't. Right. So, sorry to disappoint you, you're all rich. Under any rational way of deciding who's rich, we're all rich. And pretty well everyone in this country is rich. There are a few who are not, but not very many. Because what do you think it takes for you to be rich? An income of £150,000 a year? Would that be enough to be rich? Most people in Faversham would say yes. If you're in northwest London, you'd say, no, that's not enough to live on. You know, it's quite, I was reading an article a little while back, and somebody actually picked up on that, that's where I got the figure from, you know, saying, you know, most people in that sort of a London-based culture would think something like £150,000 a year, you're, you're just about getting by, you're not rich. But they're in a small fraction of the top 1% of the population of the country. Because we tend to judge ourselves by other people yeah. around us, yeah. not looking at it in absolute terms. 
By world standards, we're all rich. We're in the top 1% of the world's population in terms of uh, what our incomes are. Even in terms of this country, compared to 100 years ago or 150 years ago, we are way rich. You know, 150 years ago, if you were working class, you were liable to be eating bread with a scrape of dripping or a margarine on it as your main diet, most meals. Even compared to 10 years ago, most people are better off. This is why I find when people talk about the cost of living crisis, I find that difficult. Because if it's a cost of living crisis now, what was it 10 years ago when we were worse off? We call it a crisis because they're people who, and I'm not saying there aren't people who haven't got serious financial issues at the moment. There are. But overall, it is, it's a question more of how we distribute what we've got more than what we've got. And also, I think if we look at what I've just been saying from the chapter 4 about the way God uh, judges our arrogance... I don't think, and if you think the word crisis really means when things come to a head and get to their worst, you know, you talk about a crisis with somebody having a fever when the temperature gets up to the highest and then, when, then the temperature breaks and they get better. We're not at the crisis point yet. Things are going to get worse. Maybe not immediately, I suspect they will, but... I can't see things in 10 years being better than they are now. I could be wrong. I've probably said that sort of thing before many times in the last 40 years and been proved wrong every single time. But, you know, we can't expect things just to get better. Things might get worse. God has been preparing us as a church for this time. You look at things like food banks across the nation... Ten years ago, there were not very many. Uh, it was, numbers were growing. Now, you've got one in most towns. You know, the one in Faversham started, preparations for it started about ten years ago. Been running probably about nine years. To start with, some of us were involved in the early days. You're lucky if you had one person turn up. And if two or three people turned up, you thought you were busy. Now they're getting, I don't know, 20 families turning up on a day. And they're having to do three sessions rather than two in a week. But we needed that starting point to be where we are now, when, where the need is greater. You know, God starts, God speaks through his prophets and through people who can see what's happening, even if they don't call themselves prophets, so that things are then ready. Well, I've got, sorry, I think I've gone a bit off here, but. Uh, Right. I think we need to recognise we are wealthy. I think the other problem we have with this is he talks, say, in verses 4 onwards about the wages of the labourers have been taken away by fraud. You know, the le and of course, at the time when James was writing, everything was much more personal. So you employed the labourers. 
So if you were exploiting them, you were clearly personally exploiting them. These days, we subcontract that out to large, possibly multinational companies. So the cheapness of some of the things we can buy in our country will depend on the low wages paid to people in other countries. But we don't see the context. Mm -hmm. Even with some of the, this is where I'm going to get onto tricky ground, you know, you can see some of the large companies in this country in the way they use particularly zero hours contracts, the way they exploit people uh, in terms of uh, the actual amount they get paid for the work they do. Now, personally, there's some companies I wouldn't use out of choice because of the, what their employment practices. But I think it's one of these things that it is not an easy thing to decide. You can't decide for other people how they should make that kind of decision. It would be very easy for me to rant and rave and name certain names and say you shouldn't use these because it would be companies because it would be sinful to do so. But what does James say at the end of chapter 4? Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So if God does challenge you on that sort of thing, and you decide to continue to use that company, that is sin to you. If you aren't challenged on it, it's not sinful. Because there's some things which, some things are absolutely sinful. There's no, there's no way it can ever be right. But there's some things where, if you know what is the right thing to do, and it's not an not doing, it's not that case of not doing it is sinful, but if you know there's something right you should be doing, if you don't then do it, that is sinful to you. So we need to hear from God what he tells us. So this is why James tells us to weep and howl. You've got, you know, you've got to think about these things. They're not things which are just going to land on your plate. But the question is, are we willing to let God speak to us in this? And I think it's, no, just, I didn't give this uh, any thought of bringing this in this morning, so I didn't uh, give this to go up on the screen. But if we look at the end of chapter 4 in Acts, from verse 32, if you've got your Bible and can turn to it, remember the James writing this letter is the James who was the apostle in Jerusalem heading up the Jerusalem church. Okay? This is telling us about the Jerusalem church in the early days here in Acts. So, this is the context from which James writes his letter. We're told in chapter 4 and verse 32 Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, 
For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So people were selling things, bringing it to the apostles so it could be used so nobody was in need. If you read on in chapter 5, and I haven't got time to do this, so you're going to have, if you want, don't know the story, you're going to have to read it for yourself. You've got Ananias and Sapphira who decide to sell a piece of property, keep back some of the money, but pretend they'd bought all the money. And what we have in verse 4 there, this is what Peter says to him. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So in chapter 4, we're told that people were selling stuff to help make sure there's nobody in need. And yet the apostles are also saying, that's your property, you don't have to sell it. If you do sell it, it's up to you what you do with it. Both things are happening at the same time. Alright, so we've got to... We've got to live with this not conflict it's just it's not you, we don't lose the choice our individual ability to make decisions uh, God has given us choices to make and we need to decide how to do them right now uh, Sam do you want to go and check whether the Stepping stones want us to take people. Because we've got about another 10 minutes I need to do. So if they need us to uh, have the children in, we'll have them in. Right. One thing this is leading up to, I think is an application for us, is that we usually have a gift day in December in which we give the money. Uh, in the past, it was to the Pathways from Poverty project of Relational Mission, which doesn't seem to be running now. So what the elders want to do is two weeks time, December the 3rd, we'll have a gift day and what we'll do is we'll give the money to the butchers in Bolivia who, if you remember, uh, in February we gave £1,000 to help them put a roof on the, pro- on the building they're putting up uh, to house uh, street children and their families. Can we have... There was an updated video at the call conference, so let's show that now. Oh, it's gone now, but if you looked at the top, if you looked at the top, you'd see they've got a roof on, but there's no windows on the two floors underneath. Now, I had, went on to their RM Bolivia website this morning, and basically, to complete that centre, they need 40 windows, 12 doors, three more bathrooms, you name it. Right, they've got a 12-stage plan for getting that centre going. Both, as you've noticed, working is in the countryside, so both working in the rural areas, but also with the street people uh, in the town. And the point is to be able to bring people from the streets into the centre uh, there. Uh, once they get to stage eight, they can apply for registration. 
At the moment, they're still working on the first two stages of their 12-point plan, and they need £100,000 to complete kitting out the uh, building to get to the end of stage two. So what we want to do is have a gift day to raise money to help them with kitting that out. Now, I haven't uh, checked out with the other elders because it only came to me this morning, but I, we know you are a very generous church. And I think as elders and as trustees, we thank you for the way you give generously week, month in, out for our regular uh, costs of running the church. We thank you for the way you give and reg no, to the other gift days. And I know you've given already about £2,000 recently uh, for the Amenia Relief Fund. But I think rather than just saying now this isn't an official target it's just me thinking I would like to see us give £5,000 for that which is not going to be easy probably and if we don't reach that it's not a big issue but I think that is something we should be looking for so most of the costs they've got remaining is for the windows Love that £100,000. So if we can get £5,000, we might be able to do windows on half of one of the sides or something. Okay, it won't do it all, but it will do some towards that. Uh, now, generally, my... Uh, I think my, my gifting is in teaching, so what I tend to do is it preach and just leave you to apply it to yourselves. But I think when at the beginning of uh, early, earlier in the service, I think God gave me a couple of prophetic words relating to this. So if these apply to you, you need to do something about it. If they don't apply to you, you don't. It's, quite, it's, it's as simple as that. Right. I think the first thing on this, in terms of the gift day, I think there's at least one person who needs to give very generously to break a stronghold of stinginess. If you're not stingy, that obviously doesn't apply to you. But also, the other thing, and again, I don't know whether these apply to one person, more than one person, or nobody. It's up to God to speak if it applies to you. I think there are those who've got a gift of generosity already, and God wants you to step up to the next level. So if you think those things apply to you, you need to ask God, you know, how do you apply that in terms of this gift day? I think, I think this gift day can be a, a stepping stone to something bigger. Yeah. Also, you know, it's a way of showing God I'm responding to what you're calling me to. And this is what I'm doing now. It's not the end of things, but it's I'm showing to you that I'm willing to respond to how you call. And finally, again, I didn't uh, give this out in advance for the screen. 1 Timothy. Now, we've been talking, James has been telling us a lot, but let's see what Timothy says. He sums up all of this in about one, two verses or so. In 1 Timothy 6, right at the end, verses 17 to 19, I think it is. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, 
nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. There's nothing wrong with enjoying what God gives us. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is truly life. So, riches and treasure are not truly life, but sometimes God gives us them to us so that we can use them so we do receive the life he gives us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for all you've given us. Lord, we ask, show us what we should be doing in how we use it. And Lord, help us to hear from you and actually put what you tell us into action. Amen. Oh,